Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, the weirdest thing, just as we were preparing to go on the air, I found uh, six confidential U.S. government documents in uh, in my kitchen. I don't know how that happened. But anyway, if you were planning to go over to Japan to uh, attend the dumping of radioactive water into the ocean from the Fuke plant, um, it's been delayed again. The Japaners had revised the timing of the planned release of the treated but still radioactive wastewater at Fuke to around spring or summer. Initial target was this spring. They're uh, factoring in the progress of a release tunnel as well as, this is a bit amusing, the need to gain public support. It is, just a reminder, water that has had most of the radioactivity. It's water that's gone through the Fook, now closed Fook plant, has picked up some radioactivity from that trip, has most of it removed, but the tritium remains, and they're going to dump it in the Pacific. So now it's been delayed. The government and the plant operator, TEPCO, announced way back in April 2021 that plan to uh, release the wastewater. More than a million tons of water stored in about a 1,000 tanks at the plant. They're now hampering the decommissioning of the plant. And, uh, of course, they risk leaking in the event of a major earthquake or tsunami. Well, that's not going to happen. Under the current plan, TEPCO is going to transport the treated water through a pipeline from the tanks to uh, the coast, where it's going to be diluted with seawater and sent through an undersea tunnel that's currently under construction offshore, where it'll actually get out and join the ocean. The company has acknowledged the possibility of rough winter weather, delaying progress in building the tunnel. And the government this week announced a revised action plan, enhanced efforts to ensure safety. Why, even more efforts to ensure safety than before. What a good idea that is. Uh, As well as measures to financially support the local fishing industry in case, you know, of hot fish. And the release target around spring or summer, meaning probably next year. TEPCO's president said despite the government's new timing for the wastewater release, his company still aims to have the facility, the tunnel, ready by the spring. He acknowledged a lack of local understanding about the release of the wastewater and pledged to continue efforts to ease safety concerns. I don't know how he would do that. Maybe a cartoon character? We'll see. Hello, welcome to the show.
From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. First news of this smart, smart world we're in. You remember uh, Aflac, the insurance company that had the duck talking for it on TV? Well, uh, they've now revealed that personal data 
describing more than 3 million customers of its cancer insurance. That data has been leaked online. The company has apologized to customers and admitted that their surnames, age, gender, and insurance coverage were all leaked. The uh, insurance company claims that's not enough information to identify individual customers and rates the likelihood of misuse as, quote, extremely low, unquote. Of course, they're an insurance company. They're going to tell you stuff is safe, aren't they? The breach is nonetheless notable because Aflac has blamed it on a U.S.-based contractor to which it outsources some work. Aflac's apology says the contractor's servers were accessed around January 7th. They've not named the contractor. The uh, British tech journal The Register visited a prominent forum that lists stolen data and offers it for sale. On that forum, The Register found a sample of data from Aflac. The uh, date of the post matches the timeline Aflac outlined. The sample data appears to include some uh, fields with names that appear to indicate to describe benefits to which members are entitled. Aflac's breach was revealed on the same day that the Swiss insurer Zurich reportedly admitted that data described over 2 million of its Japanese customers has leaked, and the register was able to find a claim of just such a database being available on a data breach forum with alongside data from an earlier breach from Zurich describing over 4 million customers. So uh, security at insurance companies is working out well. And Apple is publishing audiobooks narrated by AI bots. Artificial intelligence bots. Apple is seeking to partner with indie, that is to say independent writers and publishers, to help them narrate their books using voices synthesized by AI. Authors were advised to reach out to two companies that produce and publish ebooks on the Apple Books app. If they want to turn their work into audiobooks, they're only accepting submissions written in English for romance and fiction. Other genres not yet supported. More and more book lovers are listening to audiobooks, yet only a fraction of books are converted to audio, leaving millions of books unheard, Apple said. Well, they didn't say it. They wrote it in a blog post. They didn't have an AI reading it. Many authors, especially independent authors and those associated with small publishers, aren't able to create audiobooks during the, due to the cost and complexity of production. You, you visualizing the complexity of producing an audiobook? Because I am. Apple Books Digital Narration makes the creation of audiobooks more accessible to all, they say. Of course, these... Uh, these voices now of computers, as you've heard, a lot better than the uh, tinny ones that used to mimic humans. I'm not talking about you, Ralph. Don't get all... They uh, now sound pretty natural, according to Apple. The new feature will allow self-published writers to expand their audiences 
giving them another source of revenue and giving Apple another source of revenue. They take 30% of all purchases made through the Apple Store because it is a smart, smart world. And now, news of Crypto Winter. Well, guess who's involved in crypto? The Winklevoss twins. Remember them? They uh, they were involved in the founding of Facebook and then um, felt they were ill ill done by Mark Zuckerberg. Well, they have an exchange where you can lose your, I mean, uh, trade crypto. It's called Gemini. And... Uh, they raised billions of dollars worth of crypto assets <laughs> from th- hundreds of thousands of investors for Gemini Fo- Earn. Gemini Earn, I say. A program that promised investors high interest on the assets. <laughs> assets. Oh, no, sorry. These were real assets. No, they were crypto assets that they lent to Genesis. So Gemini and Genesis. Confused enough already? Earn was billed to customers, sold to customers, actually, as a way to passively grow their crypto holdings with advertised annual returns as high as 7.5%, according to the Daily Beast. Customers would deposit their funds into the program. The money would be lent out to a third party generating interest. Gemini assured users they could cash out their crypto at any time, plus the interest. You've earned, unquote, a report from the Daily Beast. But it turns out that wasn't quite true in November amid fallout from the collapse of the crypto exchange FTX. Genesis abruptly paused withdrawals, meaning 340,000 customers could no longer access their funds. Their assets, estimated at $900 million, still stuck in limbo. So the Securities and Exchange Commission has um, now charged them with offering unregistered securities. It seeks permanent injunctive relief, disgorgement, and civil penalties. Former employees told the Daily Beast that Gemini earns terms and conditions were highly dubious from the start. One staffer recalled reading the fine print for the first time saying, we were like, holy crap, are you effing kidding me? Unquote. Among those terms, customer assets were loaned out on an unsecured basis, which meant their money would not be safe in the event of a market collapse. Well, that's not going to... The deposits were also not insured, nor were they guaranteed against errors or fraudulent activity. In recent weeks, Gemini has unsuccessfully attempted to wrest the earn assets from Genesis. Genesis owes its creditors more than $3 billion, according to a report by the Financial Times. The Winklevosses and the founder and chief executive of the parent firm of Gemini have exchanged pot shots amidst the negotiations. And the Winklevoss twins had previously rankled employees last summer just after 
firing scores of workers. They took their, what the Daily Beast describes as, their amateurish cover band on tour. They laid off 10% of their staff, one former employee told the Beast, and then they went on tour. Well, it cheered them up. Larry Summers, the Harvard professor and former top financial advisor of the Obama administration, has cut ties with a troubled crypto conglomerate, Digital Currency Group. Summers joined it as a senior advisor in 2016, a year after it was formed. It's not clear when Summers resigned his role. Through a spokesperson, he announced he'd left DCG several months ago. But he was listed on the website as a member of the company's board as recently as November. That's now been removed. He's faced criticism for his role at the um, digital currency group due to his comments about Sam Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX when... uh, He compared it to Enron last November. A Washington watchdog group, the Revolving Door Project, said he should have disclosed the economists' ties to crypto companies, including DCG. DCG's own ties to FTX weren't disclosed either. This was uh, apropos of an interview that Summers did with Bloomberg. And finally... In the crypto winter, and it is cold in here, Bulgarian prosecutors have launched an investigation into alleged illegal activities conducted by a cryptocurrency called Nexo. They raided more than 15 sites in the Bulgarian capital of Sofia. The announcement came after Nexo said last month it would phase out its U.S. products and services due to clashes with regulators. You don't want to be clashing with regulators. In Sofia, active steps are being carried out as part of a pre-trial investigation aimed at neutralizing an illegal criminal activity of crypto lender Nexo, said a spokeswoman for the prosecutor's office in Bulgaria. It's been established, the spokeswoman said, that main organizers of the international platform are Bulgarian citizens, and the main activities are from Bulgarian territory. Over 300 investigators, police officers, and security officers are involved in the investigation. They're investigating the setting up of an organized crime group, tax crimes, money laundering, banking activity without a license, and computer fraud. Prosecutors said Nexo had been operating through many companies, many of which were just post boxes. A Nexo public relations official told Reuters by email that Bulgarian authorities were at one of its offices which has only um, payroll, customer support, and backed offices. Crypto lenders act like banks for the crypto world, offering customers interests on cryptocurrencies they deposit with the platform. According to Bulgarian prosecutors, 94 billion U.S. dollars has gone through the Nexo platform in the last five years. They said they've also established that a person officially found to have financed terrorist activities had used the platform to transfer cryptocurrencies without elaborating. It's cold in here because it's crypto winter. And now, 
News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Eversall III. They're looking for $1.2 billion, U.S. dollars, actually a billion pounds, which uh, they, as um, the British Parliament, the money was supposed to be uh, granted to increase sporting participation after the London Olympics. But uh, the location of the, or the destination of the money is unknown. The House of Commons Public Accounts Committee said at the time of the Olympics, the government committed to making a legacy of uh, a vast fund. The report said some of the benefits have failed to materialize years on from the Olympics. The report said despite the Department for Digital Culture, Media, and Sport spending an average of $390 million of taxpayers' cash each year to boost Activity and support sports, little impact has been made. The proportion of adults playing sport in Great Britain at least once a week fell in the three years following the Games from 36% to 35%. The committee chair of the uh, Parliament Committee said other than a short-term financial boost, there was, quote, precious little to show by way of legacy from the Olympics and accused Sport England of, quote, a lack of vision and drive. Unquote. In a further disappointment, the country's share of active adults only increased from 62 to 63%. Two in five adults in England do not meet the chief medical officer's guidelines for recommended activity. Meanwhile, soaring energy bills now threaten the future of leisure facilities. The committee also reports the government stopped tracking the impact of the Olympics on sports participation seven years ago. So long-term legacy of the Games remains unknown. The MPs say Sport England now recognizes that, quote, elite sports success doesn't necessarily inspire activity at a grassroots level. Hmm, unquote. And organizers of the Paris Olympics need to finalize their security plans for the Games, according to France's top audit body, warning the opening ceremony on the River Seine posed a major challenge and would likely need police support. In a report presented to the French Parliament, the Court of Auditors made 15 recommendations to the organizing committee, highlighting concerns around reliance on private security operators to protect the games and risks facing transport links. The first president of the Court of Auditors called the Security Paris 24 a, quote, major challenge, unquote, and said internal security forces, your police, your army, needed to be incorporated and paid for. We're asking the global security plan is finalized in the first third of this year so the reinforcement by internal security forces can be planned. It's doable, but what the court wants to say, it is high time to get into the operational phase. It's not too late, but it's tense, unquote. 
It's got to be tense. It's a movement. And we all need one. From New Orleans, this is the show. And, um, of course, last week we had the ongoing drama of Kevin McCarthy's attempt successfully to uh, gain the gavel as the Speaker of the House of Representatives. That was followed quickly by um, an even more risible scene when, among others, being sworn in as members of the House, was a certain Brazilian-American individual by the name of George Santos, at least the last time where I looked. That was his name. He's used several. He is, as I say, a Brazilian-American. The Brazilians 
who, of course, had their own riot trying to uh, prevent the ascent of the newly elected president, also the former president, Lula, as the supporters of right-wing former President João Bolsonaro did their imitation of the insurrection at the American Capitol. Now I'm lost in the where that where that sentence goes. No, it's um, that Brazilian government. I say um, is reinstating charges against newly seated Congressperson George Santos. Santos is known in this country now for uh, a certain pattern of mendacities, um, which include most of his bio or resume, which he publicized during his campaign for Congress, um, which he described as uh, putting a little fluff on his resume. It was um, now... It turns out a little bit more than a little fluff. It was more than fluff. It was just not true. And um, the question now is, can can or will anybody do anything about it? The Speaker of the House, the newly elected Kevin McCarthy, says, well, you know, it'll go to the Ethics Committee and they'll figure it out. But uh, the Ethics Committee is, I think, by scientific proof, the slowest moving part of the House of Representatives. So the Congress, newly elected Congressperson Santos will probably be up for re-election before the Ethics Committee does anything about him. He won't be serving on any major committees. That's according to Speaker McCarthy. But those minor committees, they can be fun. And um, the news media now are full of not only stories about Congressperson Santos and his antics, but about um, head-scratching about why the media didn't discover his resume was a tissue of lies until after he was elected. The Republican committee for Nassau County, where he ran, didn't discover them either. He was um, running in a heavily Democratic district, so I guess the Republican committee just didn't think it was worth investigating him, and since he wasn't going to get elected anyway. But he did. said I was a Baruch college volleyball champ. You were hearing my pride, but I lied. When I said I grew revenue at Goldman Sachs, you were hearing the Upside, but I lied. Untruth in a campaign. 
to think about it people are likely exposed to thousands of airborne microplastics a year indoors this is uh, news of a study published in environmental science and technology from griffith university an australian institution published in environmental science and technology, I say, the study investigated the abundance, distribution, form, and possible sources of microplastics in indoor and outdoor sites in Sri Lanka. They found concentrations between 1 and 28 times higher indoors, where people spend approximately 90% of their time. Based on the indoor and outdoor levels identified in this study, the researchers calculated the average human exposure as 2,675 airborne microplastic particles per person every year. <coughs> Those are mine right there. While the inhalation of MPs, microplastics, is suggested to be an important pathway of human exposure to plastics, there is very little data on their concentration in the air, said one of the researchers. Most of the limited research on airborne microplastics comes from high-income countries with good waste management practices with only a handful of studies in lower-middle-income countries. The few available studies on them have generally collected the airborne plastics using a passive sampling technique. Whether deposited out of the atmosphere in wet or dry conditions, this method is not particularly relevant for evaluating microplastic exposure via inhalation. Unquote. For that reason, researchers used an active sampling technique, which pumped a known volume of air through a filter and evaluated the accumulated microplastics. 
To the best of our knowledge, no previous study has been conducted in South Asia to identify and quantify airborne microplastics using an active sampling method, said the co-author. Researchers collected air samples in different urban, rural, coastal, inland, industrial, and natural habitats with varying population densities. The indoor levels made up of fibers and fragments mostly from textiles and clothing were significantly higher by out- than outdoor levels by a factor of 1 to 28 times regardless of the type of outdoor environment. The uh, fibers found were transparent blue and black. They were the dominant ones. These initial results from Sri Lanka show the amount of indoor airborne microplastics is more related to indoor sources and the occupant's lifestyle than the outdoor environment, said the lead researcher. The dominant type of microplastics in both indoor and outdoor sites were polyethylene terephthalate. Terephthalate. It's one of those words with a pH followed by a TH. Terephthalate. They're originating from clothing and textiles. More research needs to be done in this region, South Asia, as it accounts for nearly a quarter of the world's population and is the second largest contributor to global plastic waste, said the lead researcher. Long-term monitoring of airborne microplastics is needed worldwide to create a database on their abundance and distribution and to accurately assess human Exposure via inhalation and the potential health risks. Oh, it's not good for you, is it? All right, then. Thanks for the research. And now, news of the godly. Jesuits in Slovenia have asked for forgiveness from the women who have accused Father Marko Rupnik of spiritual and sexual abuse, saying... They believe the claims. Rupnik, a Jesuit priest and artist originally from Slovenia, has been accused of the sexual, spiritual, and psychological abuse of at least nine women from a religious community with which he was formerly connected. This is from the Catholic News Agency. The alleged abuse took place in the late 1980s and early 1990s. An investigation into the claims was dropped by the Vatican last October thanks to the statute of limitations. Quote, it's obvious that as a province in the past, we did not know how to listen to the victims and take appropriate action to clear up the issues and to put an end to the suffering. We fully accept and understand the indignation, anger, and disappointment of the victims and their loved ones. Unquote the Slovenian Jesuits on their website. The abuse claims, quote, deeply shook us. We believe in the sincerity of the religious sisters and other victims who spoke about their suffering and other circumstances regarding emotional, sexual, and spiritual abuse by our brother. We sincerely ask everyone for forgiveness. They said, The allegations of victims undoubtedly show that the competent church leaders did not take appropriate action, a result of which the unsuspected suffering of a number of women was increased and prolonged, said the statement. Rubnik's ministry is overseen by superiors in Rome, 
where he's lived since 1993. He's an artist, 68 years old. His artworks decorate Catholic churches, chapels, and shrines around the world, including the Redemptorist Mater Chapel in the Vatican. We all want the truth to come out, which will allow everyone involved to get justice, said the Slovenian Jesuits. Noting that an investigation and judicial process is usually necessary to reveal the truth, then the bishops of Slovenia issued a statement about Rupnik. They condemned the alleged abuse. Victims are never guilty, the bishops said. We are on the side of the victims. We express our compassion and closeness to them and commit ourselves to help them. Unquote. But in light of Rupnik's success as a sacred artist, the bishops asked people to distinguish his unacceptable and reprehensible actions from his extraordinary spiritual and artistic accomplishments in mosaics and other areas. These facts are a great test of our faith and trust in God, said the, the uh, bishops. Media reports published in early December of last year alleged that Rupnik had apparently three decades ago sexually, spiritually, and psychologically abused sisters in a religious institute with which he was formerly associated. Following the reports, the Jesuits in Rome confirmed he had also incurred an automatic excommunication for absolving an accomplice in a sin against the Sixth Commandment. The excommunication was verified and shortly thereafter lifted by the Vatican in 2020. Rubnick's ministry has been under restriction since 2019. He has continued to preach online and received public accolades. In March 2020, he gave one of the annual Lenten sermons to the Roman Curia and Pope Francis. So he, he knows people at the top. And the polarizing legacy of Australian Cardinal George Pell is evident in his homeland, the St. Patrick's Cathedral in Melbourne, where he first rose to the bank of Archbishop, is also where he's accused of molesting two choir boys in the 1990. Pell died this week, and his news spread. Mourners were pictured attending a mass at the church, according to the BBC. They uh, strolled past ribbon tributes left for victims and survivors of child sex abuse on the cathedral's fence. Cardinal Pell was Australia's most powerful Catholic, but he was reviled by many during a six-decade career. He worked his way through the ranks of the church in Victoria State of Australia, serving as Archbishop of both Melbourne and then Sydney, became then one of the Pope's top aides. He was a man who put Australia at the center of the Catholic world in a way it has never been before, said historian Miles Pattenden. Even before he faced charges himself, Cardinal Pell's reputation in Australia was marred by the Church's failure to tackle its child sex abuse crisis. As a leader, many Australians felt he bore some responsibility for the broader Church's concealment of abuse. That's according to former Catholic peace, uh, priest and historian Paul Collins. A landmark inquiry into child sex abuse in institutional settings found that the cardinal 
also personally knew of child sex abuse by priests in Australia as early as the 1970s and had failed to take action. He disputed those findings, saying they were, quote, not supported by evidence, unquote. He also faced criticism as an architect of the Australian Church's first victim compensation plan called the Melbourne Response. It was held by his supporters as evidence of his keenness to address the crisis, but it capped compensation payments, forced many survivors to waive their right to lawsuits, and was accused of generally lacking compassion, again, according to the BBC. A review of the scheme's operations between 1996 and 2014 found it spent as much money on administration as it did on compensating more than 300 victims. Then in 2018, a jury convicted Cardinal Pell of abusing two boys while Archbishop of Melbourne. He always maintained his innocence, but he spent 13 months in prison before the High Court of Australia quashed the verdict in 2020, finding the jury had not properly considered all the evidence in his trial. The father of one of his alleged victims is now suing for damages in a civil court. It will continue against the Archdiocese against the Archdiocese, I say, of Melbourne and the late Cardinal's estate. News of the Godly. Now, the Apologies of the Week. An astronaut apologized this week for a data tampering incident that occurred a few years back with Japan's space agency issue a warning to the individual because he's slated for a second stint on the International Space Station later this year. Don't do that again. Satoshi Furukawa, 58, the third Japanese person to complete a long-term mission in space, was responsible for an experiment conducted between 2016 and 17 that simulated life on the space station. He, prior, he prioritized conducting research over immediately reporting a mistake. A source linked to this experiment has said, quote, I sincerely apologize for undermining the trust of the people, he said during a news conference in Tokyo. On his planned second stint on the station, he said, quote, I would like to carry out my assigned duties faithfully. That would be good. The experiment assessed the stress levels and mental well-being of people confined for about two weeks in a closed environment, meant to recreate the conditions inside a space station. Two researchers who conducted interviews to ascertain the mental state of the participants fabricated data, including making it seem as if other researchers had also participated. Furukawa had supervisory responsibility for the experiment. George Santos was not involved. The Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency public revealed a couple months ago the data tampering had occurred. The source has said the mistake discovered five years ago was reported to Furukawa, but he did not convey the information to the space agency's ethics committee immediately. President Hiroshi Yamakawa of the Space Agency said we lost trustworthiness in our research because of lackluster data management. We apologize for not having arranged an appropriate research environment. 
I blame the environment. The College of Physicians of Philadelphia, America's oldest medical society, issued an apology this week for an affiliation with a Penn dermatologist who experimented on people incarcerated at the city's Holmesburg prison. Between 1951 and 74, Albert Kligman conducted experiments on mostly black incarcerated individuals at the prison in the northeast section of the city. He exposed them to viruses, fungi, LSD, and dioxin, a component of Agent Orange. Kligman, who died 13 years ago, worked at Penn for more than half a century. He invented the popular acne medication, Retin-A, he received the College of Physicians Distinguished Achievement Award in 2003. Quote, the College of Physicians offers its deepest sympathies for those who suffered, including their families, and it apologizes for its silence, not expressing these sentiments earlier. The organization said in a statement, though this apology is long overdue, the statement continued, it is no less heartfelt for the delay. Statement it also said the organization had rescinded Kligman's Distinguished Achievement Award. Kligman's ethical wrongdoing first drew public attention decades ago, well before the physician organization awarded him its prestigious award in 2003. There were newspaper accounts of the experiments, lawsuits, and a book detailing the extent of the harm. Julia Haller, board president for the College of Physicians, wasn't part of the college's board in 2003, said she and her colleagues have been reviewing records to try to learn more about the discussions surrounding the decision to give Kligman the award. So far, they've come up short. Quote, how, have, how could this have gone down, she asks. I don't know. Kligman offered those who participated a small fee. One, Leotis Jones, he was injected with a rare disease from India in exchange for $10, it would go up to 15 if he developed an abscess. Of course, you know, money was worth more then. Representative Dan Cranshaw of Texas on Sunday last apologized for calling his fellow House colleagues, his fellow colleagues, good writing there, terrorists amid a tense election for Speaker, Quote, look, things got heated and things got said, obviously, to people who took offense by that. It's pretty obvious that it's meant as a turn of phrase, he told the host of State of the Union on CNN, Jake Tapper. The GOP lawmaker said he was a little taken aback by the sensitivity in the response to his comments, noting he's been called awful vile things by the very same wing of the party that he was fighting at that moment, but underscored that he was sorry for the quip. Quote, to the extent I have colleagues that were offended by it, I sincerely apologize to them. I don't want them to think I actually believe they're terrorists. It's clearly a turn of phrase that what you use in what is an intransigent negotiation. My favorite kind. British Prime Minister Richie Sunak's governing Conservative Party expelled a lawmaker from its parliamentary bloc this week for comparing COVID-19s. <sighs> To the Holocaust. Andrew Bridgen has crossed a line, causing great offense in the process, said the chief whip, head of party discipline for the conservatives. Misinformation about the vaccine causes harm and costs lives. I'm there for removing the whip from Andrew Bridgen with immediate effect, pending 
an investigation, unquote. The chief whip. Bridgen, a longstanding critic of COVID-19 vaccines, had earlier this week tweeted, tweeted a link to an article on vaccine side effects, adding the comment, quote, as one consultant cardiologist said to me, this is the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. Asked about the charge of anti-Semitism, Bridgen later apologized, quote, in relation to my tweet this morning, the use of the Holocaust as a reference was insensitive, for which I apologize. I have deleted the offending tweet. That's a tweet delete. However, this must not be used, he says, to distract from valid concerns related to the vaccine. The article I tweeted presents the work of a Jewish-Israeli researcher, unquote. He's suspended from the Parliament's lower chamber, the House of Commons, for five days. On another matter, Deadline over Delaware, Delaware House Majority Leader Valerie Longhurst has apologized after she referred to one of her black colleagues as, quote, a colored woman, unquote. Representative Longhurst made the comment on the first day of the new session while recognizing her colleague, Representative Melissa Minor Brown, on her new role as House Majority Whip, a historic role, the first time a black woman has served in a leadership role in the Delaware House of Representatives. But Representative Longhurst added, I'd like to make special recognition for Representative Minor Brown as the first colored woman in leadership in the House of Representatives. Give it up to Representative Minor Brown. You stand up, girl. Own it. Unquote. The very next day, Representative Longhurst apologized. Unfortunately, I horribly misspoke when trying to say woman of color. I know how hurtful that word is that is so clearly associated with one of the bleaker times in our history, Jim Crow. It's derogatory term and the exact opposite sentiment I was trying to express to my friend. From that, I am truly sorry. Unquote. Representative Minor Brown responded, saying she understands why people are upset by her choice of words, but that she doesn't feel that Representative Longhurst meant any harm by it. I believe the intent of what you were trying to say was not negative or coming from a bad place. I know what you are. I know who you are, even if the word choice was not the greatest. Unquote. And, finally, the Church of England this week apologized for past links to slavery by a related financial body now engaged in a wide-ranging process to compensate victimized communities. I am deeply sorry said the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. The time has come to take action in response to this shameful past. According to the commissioners of the church, quote, nothing we do hundreds of years later will restore the lives of enslaved people, but we can and will acknowledge the horror and shame of the church's role in the slave trade. And through responses, we will seek to begin to address the injustices committed. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature this broadcast.
Finally, just a little news of the warm Earth's average surface temperature last year, tied with 2015 as the fifth warmest on record, according to NASA. Continuing the planet's long-term warning trend, global temperatures in 2022 were 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit above the average for the baseline period, 1951 through 1980. This warming trend, says NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, is alarming. That's it for this week's edition of Le Show. Back next week at the same time on the same radio stations and on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it would just be like not having to be alarmed if you agree to join with me then. But you already, thank you very much, uh-huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pan Holstead, and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans. The email address for this program, imagine that, it contains the playlist of the music you hear here, as well as the email address for this program, and your chance to get Cards I Talk t-shirts, Ask Your Dad, all, and so much more at harryshearer.com. And yes, I'm sticking it out on Twitter. It's not what you think, at the Harry Shearer. show comes to you through the facilities of WWNO. Flagship station to the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City.